This episode of the Adoption Connection podcast is sponsored by Faith, Hope, and Connection, a 30-day devotional for adoptive and foster parents. In this book, you'll find real, often raw, stories from adoptive and foster parents in the trenches. You'll find scripture and faith-filled hope pointing you to Jesus, and you'll find honest reflections, speaking courage to your soul, and reminding you that you are not alone. This devotional is a gift to you from 30 authors, all foster and adoptive parents, who offer a window into their own lives and families. You'll recognize yourself time and time again in their words. Do not miss this devotional. This devotional is available on Amazon, both in softcover or Kindle version. Welcome to the Adoption Connection podcast, where we share resources by and for adoptive and foster moms. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it, and we're here for you. Hello, Melissa. Welcome to episode 61 of the Adoption Connection podcast. I am so excited about this episode because, as a lot of you know, Lisa and I represent all three parts of the adoption triad. I'm an adult adoptee and an adoptive mom, and Lisa's a birth mom or first mom and an adoptive mom as well. And we also really value the voice of experience here. We like to try to get as close to the source as possible so that the stories will resonate with you guys. So Lisa's going to tell us a little bit more about our guests, but I think it's important that we are always looking for a variety of voices to speak into these very complex and sometimes tricky topics of adoption Today, we're going to talk about race, and it's a heated topic, and there are a lot of people with strong, strong opinions, and a lot of them are very true, but every single person has a different experience, and so we really need to cast our net wide and talk to, you know, people of all walks of life and colors and experiences, and it just makes our experience so much richer and helps us be such a better resource and parent to our kids. And Melissa, you speak from personal experience in this too, as a woman of color, which I really value as well. So today we're going to hear from Derek Hamer. He is 21 years old and a college student. He was adopted from Kenya when he was six. His parents met him when he was five and a half, when they found him on the streets and brought him home when he was six. He had been on the streets in Kenya since he was four years old. He has a very powerful story, and I just know you're going to love hearing what he has to say. Yeah, I'm really excited. You guys are going to love this conversation with Derek. Well, hello, Derek. Welcome to the Adoption Connection podcast. Hello, Lisa. How's it going? It's good. Thank you. I'm so glad you're willing to be on and talk about growing up as a transracially adopted child in your family. I think it's a topic that a lot of us are really interested in. And I know just based on conversations from our Adoption Connection Facebook group, people have a lot of questions. I am so excited. I'm coming to you from Seattle where it's sunny. Uh, that's a, not two words you usually put together, but yeah, I'm excited. I'm ready to, I'm ready to do this. Good. Well, we're really excited to have you. So I think it would be great for our listeners if you could just tell us sort of the broad sweep of your adoption story, and then we can get into it a little more and talk about race and identity. Yeah, perfect. So yeah, I was born in Kenya. At around the age of two, my brother was also born. 
And my mom really was never around. And so at that point, I became the primary caretaker. I did this until I was probably about five, uh, around the age of four and a half. I uh, lived on the streets on my own. I kept, uh, I'd keep, I would keep escaping from my grandma's house and go to the streets. What I would do is I'd go there, I'd get some food, come back and give the rest to my brother. But around that age, four and a half, I remember I felt this sensing, right? I felt God telling me to go to this church. And so I ended up going to this church just one day. And while I was there, I ended up actually meeting uh, my future parents, right? My, uh, my soon-to-be adoptive, adopted parents. On that trip, I don't think anyone expected that I'd be adopted. I don't think my parents except, expected that it'd be, they'd be getting two new members into their family. Uh, but, you know, when God speaks and says, hey, you need to do this, you end up doing it. Um, I remember the first night, actually. Uh, so actually that day, we'd been, they'd been doing uh, washing and uh, caring for the street kids. We'd get, uh, do, give baths and then give clothes. They were kind of towards the end of their trip. And so when they got to this point, they really uh, had no clothes or towels left over to uh, give to us street children. Uh, but after they had bathed me, um, I remember my mom had been sitting there. And so she grabs me, my, uh, my future mom, that is, she grabs me. And just hugs me tightly and starts wiping me uh, off with just with her with her shirt, right? And so she just kind of hugs me tightly, and that's how she uh, wiped me. That night, uh, me and my friend John, we ended up going to uh, the place they were staying, and I walk into this room. Uh, it's a big room. There's tables set up. People are eating dinner, and I go and I crawl underneath one of these tables, and I sit right on my uh, soon-to-be father's lap, right? And that was that was an amazing moment because. Uh, I'd seen this guy one time, but uh, right after that, I just kind of knew this is the person I wanted to be with. This is a person I wanted to uh, really be my father. And so next day, I'd say it was more the start of the adoption story. Tell me, what was your parents' purpose in that trip? I mean, it wasn't to find children to adopt, correct? No, not at all, actually. In fact, uh, my dad, right before the trip, had said, guys, we're going here for mission work. We're doing mission work there. They were from a church in California, and so they came with them on a mission trip. They were giving just uh, giving relief work, um, helping uh, get food, clothes. And so, no, they had never had in their mind at all that this was going to be a trip where they were going to add members to their family. So what happened the next day that began to change all of that? Yeah, the next day that began to change that. Uh, well, it, it actually had started a little, a little that night when um, my mom and my two brothers were outside, and they were all standing around. And, uh, one of my brothers walks up to my mom and says, Mom, I just got this feeling that we need to adopt this kid. And they said, oh, okay, whatever. And so then my oldest brother walks over and says, Mom, I also got this feeling we need to adopt this kid. Now, like I said earlier, my dad had said, they're not going to adopt anyone, right? They're not, they're not, they're here to do work. And so my dad actually walks out and says, yes, yes, I know. I also got this feeling that we need to adopt this kid. And so they had this feeling. They were ready. They uh, were okay. And so in the morning, they were actually planning and calling my sister. My sister had been home because she, uh, she couldn't make it all the way to, Mer- uh, to Africa because she had all these sicknesses, and so the doctors wouldn't let her travel. And so the next day, they planned to tell her. And so the next day comes, and my, uh, pa- uh, my parents call my sister and say, hey, we need to tell her. Uh, she's going to be so excited. This is going to be great. But right before they can start to say anything, she says, Mom, Dad, I need to tell you something. I go, okay, yeah, you go first, whatever. And they, she says, last night, I had this dream that you guys were bringing me back a brother named Derek. They were amazed. Like, they were shocked. They're like, this is, okay, this can't be true. Like, this can't be real, whatever. They even had this thought of like, okay, well, she, like, 
she had this dream that they would get this brother named Derek. I was very close to the actual real thing because his name is Eric. But what happened was earlier when I'd met them, I'd introduced myself as Derek, but they thought that because of my thick accent, my name was Eric. So the whole trip, they're calling me Eric, Eric, Eric. And so then at one point I just looked at them and said, why are you keep calling me Eric? My name is Derek. And so then they made, uh, it came clear to them, wow, God really was using even Erica who wasn't able to make it on this trip. That, I think that was the start of the adoption process. The next day I had also told them that I had a brother. And so we went into the village and we found my brother who's there with my grandmother. My grandmother walks out and looks at my mom and says, I've been praying every day that an angel would come and be able to take these boys. And you guys are an answer to prayer. And that kind of was just like, okay, this is, this is God. God has so many people in this story. And so. Amazing. How old were you and your brother? Yeah. So at the time I was, um, how old was I? I was five. My brother was three when this had all started. Yeah. And do you remember, I mean, obviously they weren't able to just take you home on a plane. It's a little more complicated than that. What was the process like? And do you remember how long it took for you to actually get home? It took, I want to say upwards of six months for me to actually, for the process to go. Um, my brother and I remember so much because every agency that they'd go to, they'd say no visa, no visa, no visa. And so we just kind of, they were, people would just been telling them, no, no, sorry, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I mean, so much to the point that when later when we got adopted, Reggie and I would play this game where we'd be like, we'd pretend to like be an agent and someone would come up and say, oh, sorry, no visa, no visa. Because we'd <laughs> heard that so much. Like we, we didn't really understand English, but we could understand no visa, no visa to the point of like, oh, that means it's not going to happen. Like nothing's going to happen. So it took so long. I don't, uh, so many people just told them, no, it's not going to happen. Um, so many of my parents, friends even said, yeah, why, why are you trying? Like, it's, not going to happen, but why don't you just give up? Because it's not going to happen. And so, yeah, and I, I remember that. I remember uh, what happened was my dad would come and stay for a, a few weeks with us. And then my older brother would come and stay a few weeks. So that kind of just happened back and forth. And so we kind of developed this bond with uh, those two. Um, I was actually at an orphanage in, um, in Kenya. And then Reggie was at a different orphanage. And so uh, this all was happening during the adoption process. Now, did you go to the orphanage from the streets so that you could be cared for? How did you end up in the orphanage? Because you'd been on the streets and at your grandma's. Well, so what happened was um, my parents had already, my parents had kind of decided, okay, yeah, we're going to adopt this kid, but we can't just like leave him on the streets. We can't leave them, leave him there. So we need to find a place for him to stay. And so they kept looking around for places for me to stay. But because I was so young, there really was no orphanage for me to stay in. Again, that, again, that's another example of just that God working where it was, so many people had heard the answer, no, 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 it's not going to happen. So then finally God was able to open a door and get me into this orphanage that uh, I was able to stay at until I was adopted. Do you remember them coming back for you and bringing you to, the, to America? I remember because we, uh, we'd stayed in uh, Nairobi for a little bit. I think a couple of weeks we stayed in Nairobi. And I remember live, uh, being at those hotel rooms remember out, I, I just pictured outside there's like peacocks running around we were with my brother uh, my brother and my dad yeah I, I remember the whole I remember that whole process I, I do remember it's what's interesting is when they said six months I like I, I became surprised because I in my mind I actually thought it took longer than that uh, because it, it seemed like a long time uh, for that whole process to uh, finally finish I can imagine was it clear to you, even as a young child, that your parents looked different from you? 
that they were white? I mean, were you familiar with white people? Uh, living so living in Kenya, you see white people. You know, you saw them as like uh, almost. You 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 kind of knew. You knew like, oh wow, like they're uh, with them comes wealth, comes like power, and so you kind of always put them like on a higher uh, level, if you would. And so yeah, from that moment on, I always knew like, oh, these are like there's even a term called muzungu, which means white people, right? And so we, I knew uh, like I kind of that that's kind of the way I perceived them, right? And so. Um, I never really, uh, but then once I got in the family, like once I got adopted, all that changed, all that went away. I never, it wasn't like I was thinking, oh gosh, yeah, they're white, they're better than me. At that point, it was, this is my family, right? And I, and as a young, like very, the very, very first time I got adopted, I never really thought, I never really thought much about like race or any of that. I just thought, oh, this is my family. This is, this is who I, this is who I belong with. As I got a little older, yeah, it did become evident that, oh, wait, I'm different than the rest of my family and that was because um i couldn't just i couldn't just live in this fantasy of like oh everything's okay because i would soon learn that yeah wait actually actually i'm going to be treated differently than the rest of my family uh, we could we might love each other we might care about each other uh and there's no judgment in, within the family but outside this family i'm going to be treated differently do you have any idea how old you were when you began to figure that out um the very first time uh, actually, there was an incident, uh, incident that happened, actually, when it fir- uh, there was an incident that first happened in kindergarten that I personally didn't even think much of, and I just was like, I was like, well, whatever. There was a kid who I, I would play with, and he actually, like, I would try to play with him. This is kindergarten, first come to America, and so I would play with everyone. I had friends who were all sorts of different races, but I tried to play with this one kid, and uh, I, remember, I could remember him saying, oh, actually, I don't want to play with you because you're brown. Right. And at the time, that actually didn't mean much to me because I was like, oh, that's that's interesting. So I told my mom about it and she was like upset, super upset. I, again, I didn't understand. Right. I, to me, at that point, I'm like, I don't understand. And so I didn't think much of it. But I think um, as I grew a little older, I did start to realize, oh, wait, things are different. Things are going to be different for me. Um, I, I remember uh, even looking back, like watching Obama when he would uh, when he was running for president. I could. I started to kind of notice. Started to kind of think. Oh, okay. He's black. He's like me. He's going to be treated differently. Um, I and things like that. And then I think at about middle school, that's when things really changed for me. That's when things flipped. Uh, flipped the page. Actually, really a little before middle school, um, I realized. Wait, I'm different than my family. I'm going to be d- treated differently. And it isn't even necessarily just my race, but just because of my story. Right. Like I, with me comes a whole story comes a lot me living in a white family there's a lot there um i remember the first day of school actually and it was a fifth grade i was in fifth grade got off the bus right i'd met all these new friends like these kids i was excited i'm in a new school my name's like i made lots of friends like we i was oh i was gonna be friends with these people for a long time but i remember the very first day of school my mom coming to pick us up at the bus stop i can remember still to this day me walking right by her didn't say a word to her, didn't say anything. And she like looks at me and she's confused. She's like, so she gets back in the house and again, and she's like, starts talking to me and she's telling me about how much I hurt her. She's confused and what just happened. And I'm kind of silent. I'm not saying anything. And she goes, do you, and she's kind of says, can you explain like what happened? Like, why did you do that? And I finally, I think this was the first time I'd said something like this to her. I looked at her and said, mom, I need to let you know that I actually 
what happened was I wanted to walk by you because I had just come to a new community. I just made new friends. And so I couldn't let them know that my parents were white because as soon as I let them know that you guys are white, then I have to explain every part of my story. Why are they white? Why are you black? Why are you adopted? Where are your adopted parents? From them, little moment, all I wanted to do, mom, is just fit in for a little bit. I just wanted to just be like every other kid to be able to just go to school, make friends, and not have to explain every part of my story to them. That is so interesting that you said that because, you know, um, in our Adoption Connection group, I asked the members of that group if they would share questions with me that they would have for you. And one of the listeners said, how should a parent handle situations when the child is uncomfortable with the general public or student body knowing that their parents are white? A situation that comes to mind is the fall open house at school. The child is comfortable with their friends, but not 4,000 students knowing. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, I think that it's uh, like with my story, my mom had to realize that. And I think she, she'd kind of started to realize, oh, wait, things are different. But uh, at this moment, when I told her all this, that's when she really was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Like, Derek, you aren't trying to do this because you want to be rude to me. You're not doing this because you, uh, because whatever. But she said, uh, she even said like, oh, Derek, I understand. And actually what my mom started to do, she started to let me be the one to dictate when I would introduce myself. I mean, introduce her to my friends. And so that really helped, right? So it wasn't just all all at once piled on like, oh, hey, everyone, you know, like, and not that she would stand there and be like, oh, hey, I'm Derek's mom. But uh, she did, and eventually I did become comfortable. I did become comfortable. I would let my friends come and meet my mom. And I just was like, oh, yeah, my parents are, my parents are white. That's just part of what it is. But I think that first day of school, it kind of did throw me off because I didn't, it wasn't expected. It was really unexpected. And so um, I'd say that like, if, so someone who's dealing with that, yeah, I think that you let the child kind of kind of do it gradually, which my mom had to learn to do. You know, I've never heard that story before, and I've known you for a long time. And uh, I had that exact same thing happen with one of my two boys. You can probably guess which one. But football practice was over, and one of my boys came running right to me, and one walked so far away from me and around in a big circle before coming to me. And when I asked him, he said, I don't want people to know that the old white lady was my mom. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It, that's, it ha it, that, exactly. That's the way. And that's that feeling, right? And it, it's more than just, I think you learn in, uh, really in life and especially in the adoptive story, you learn that there's more to it than just what you see, right? So someone might look and see, like, oh, look, my child's running away from me. But really, you dig deeper and you say, oh, wait, with him. Uh, comes more more than just what's on in front of you. It's a deeper story, and so I think adoptive families they know that they know that yeah, there's more to it than just what's happening. Right, and it's not necessarily about rejection of the parent. It's about maybe not being ready to just be ex you know their life exposed so much. You know, the kid the kid needs to manage that. Yeah, exactly. What I mean, I'd say like um, I'm just like I, was, I would tell my uh, I would tell my mom, and I said, well, I mean, if you think about my siblings, it's the first day of school. That's probably not the first time they had to tell their whole story, their whole life story to new friends they met, right? They could just be friends with people and say, oh yeah, I like sports. 
whatever. They didn't have to tell their whole life story. But I think in as, as an adoptive child, uh, people get this, uh, really, it's more of an assumption of like, oh, well, so what happened? So then you feel like, oh, wait, do I have to tell my whole life story? I just met you. Why can't we just talk about sports? Why don't I, should I go ahead and just, we'll do some of these questions from the listeners? Do it. I'd love that. Okay. All right. So let's just do that. And um, we can take it wherever it goes. One woman asked, what do white people need to know before adopting transracially? I think, you know, for a lot of us, me included, we adopted young children at the very first. And I think I just thought it's all going to be okay because we're going to love them so much, you know? So what do you think that we needed to know before? First, you have to be aware, right? You have to be aware that uh, they're going to be treated differently. I mean, if you have uh, biological children, they're going to be treated differently than your biological children. Yeah, I I think that's really the biggest, one of the biggest things to really know is that they're going to be treated differently. Um, Because of that, uh, you're going to have, it's going to be a challenge navigating school, navigating uh, sports, um, really just navigating just the everyday life. Um, I talk to my mom all the time about how she says, yeah, uh, see the things that I could do with my biological children, as soon as I adopted uh, you two, I had to learn, oh, wait, this isn't going to be the same. This isn't going to be, it's going to be completely different. It's a whole new ball game. There's no, there's no right there's lots of books there's lots of things written about it lots of like this has been studies but again all you can read all the books you can read everything in the world but that doesn't mean it's going to necessarily prepare you for everything the world's going to throw at you um especially when you're we're talking racial families um much out there uh so much hurt so much pain um so yeah they will be treated so much differently and i think too that when you bring home really little children it's, I think things change as your kids get older, you know, like I've gone from having my boys, well, and girls too, but my boys in particular, you know, they were two and a baby when they came home and now they're almost 13 and 14. It's very different now. Exactly. I mean, right. You, you probably have seen in your own family, in your own life, it goes from everyone saying, Oh my gosh, look, they're so cute. They're so adorable to, Oh wait, I'm going to cross to the other side of the streets. Right? Or, oh, wait, I need to watch them in the store as they go down the aisle to make sure they don't steal anything. Right? So it's weird that it becomes, it goes from, oh, like, oh, they're so cute to I need to protect myself from them. That just breaks my heart. Like, it almost makes me cry because I know it's true and it is so incredibly sad to me. But I think you're, you're telling it like it is, and I think that's important. Um, do you have any resentment about being adopted by a white family? You know, it's, you know, it's super interesting. I, I, I think about it all the time. And I think that um, there are so many things about being in a uh, white family that are so great. But then I, I do have times when I'm just like, Oh dude, I do wish that I could just blend in. Right. I wish I could just go out. Uh, especially when I first, I think really when I, when I look back into my life, and I think about when we first would go out to dinner, right? Or we'd go, we'd go to dinner and people would stare at us the whole meal, right? And I look back and I'm like, yeah, there were times when I was just like, can't I just eat my meal and just eat without people looking at me, people staring at me? Can't I just go into a store without people, without people just 
looking at my family and wondering, oh, why are they, why are they the way they are? Or even uh, like, like I said, even like the first day of school, going to school without people asking your whole life story all in one day. Yeah, there were times when I do wish that. And so, yeah, I could, I would say, yeah, there were times when I would resent that. Um, and I think that every, and I think it's okay to have those feelings. So yeah, there were for sure times when I would feel that way. What advice would you give a white family adopting a biracial baby? Do you have many friends who are biracial? I do. I do have. I, I do some. I have friends who are biracial. I think for me, the biggest advice I would give is to be able to understand, uh, understand the different cultures that they come with. Um, I think one of the biggest things, one of the best things my family did is when I came from Kenya, is they were they were able to still keep my Kenyan uh, culture intact. And so, I mean, it helped that my parents were still going on mission trips back and forth to Kenya. But I think if you'd came, if you'd come through my house, you could, you'd see Kenyan flags, you'd see different things from Kenya, different, uh, different things to make me uh, appreciate my own culture, my own, uh, yeah, my Kenyan roots. That really helped. Uh, my parents did a good job of bringing around uh, African-American role models, black role models in my life. Um, to be able to help with that part of it. Because I think that, um, and I'm speaking prospectively for me, I think for me, uh, there's so much there because uh, people see me as a African, African. I'm, I'm African. People see me as African, but then at the same time, I'm treated in this country as African-American. But then again, I'm also living in a white family. So there's so much there. And so being able to bring in different pieces um, of those cultures to be able to, uh, for sure helps. Uh, my parents did a good job of that. They bring people around i remember we first came to america she uh had made a friend who was kenyan she'd come over and she'd make us kenyan food um just different things that were able to make me and help me be able to appreciate uh all different parts of my culture what did you gain most from relationships with like black role models and black friends that your parents intentionally brought into your life what do, what do you think how did that help well i think it, it helps it helped because i think Again, there were things that my parents, as white people, couldn't understand. Right? They could read about it, they could see it on the news, but they couldn't understand it because they never lived it. And so they would, uh, we made friends with the people who had lived the life, right? We'd made friends with people who'd get, uh, who would get pulled over just for having their tabs expired for a little bit, right? We'd lived, uh, we'd made friends with people who uh, would get in trouble for, parking wrong or whatever and get sent to prison or whatever right we, we'd made friends with these different people who'd lived it right you have to live it i think that's one of the things uh, my parents understood they they understood oh wait we could read we could watch movies we could watch uh, the news about this stuff but we haven't we haven't lived it and so bringing around these people who lived it really helped because uh when they talked to, to me and my brother about things it wasn't like all cute like oh you know everyone's happy you know just it was hey there's some things in this world that just aren't fair, but you have to make good decisions because of your skin color, right? I mean, we had a friend who would role play with us on what would happen if you got pulled over by a police officer. And it wasn't like, oh yeah, just, you know, yes sir, yes. no, it was, you need to have your hands up. You need to show your hands at all times. You need to say yes, sir, no, sir. Uh, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am to this, whoever the officer is, this isn't a time to mess around. And at that point, I mean, my brother and I, we were still in our young teen years, but he, these people who had lived it showed us that, hey, you have to, this is a serious thing. That is, that is something I learned the most. And so even now, if I 
get pulled over for speeding, I still am because of that what the role model did in my life. I put my hands on the wheel. I say yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, and that has helped me in a huge way. Well, that was one of the questions. Did your pri- even before that, or in addition, did your parents talk to you about how to respond to law enforcement, or or did they kind of turn it over to friends? They, I go, again, my parents had tried to talk to us about it, but it was. I would say it wouldn't. It wasn't that impactful because, again, they hadn't lived it. It was coming from uh, from people who hadn't lived it and hadn't experienced it. But they kind of mm-hmm. were just, oh, you know, I read a book about it or I talked to someone about it. But talking to someone who's actually lived these things made a huge impact for my brother and I because we saw and realized, oh wait, the same type of things they're living is the same type of things that we're gonna have to experience. And so yeah, they tried talking to us about it. But it wasn't really, it really didn't sink in until we had that person who had uh, lived it explained to us. Uh, that's, that's really good to know because, you know, we are navigating all of this right now. You know, I, I feel like if I try to explain the importance, they're not really, I mean, they'll hear it, but hearing it from a black man would be profoundly, so you just need to come over and help me out with this, Derek, so. Well, that's really, I'm so glad you shared that. Someone asked, which culture do you identify with the most? And I think she's asking black culture, white culture. Also, and I meant to ask this at the beginning, do you live in an urban area or a small town, rural? Because she said, I would expect different experiences between families and kids living in those different environments. So when you first came home, you lived in a bigger community, right? Yeah, it was a bigger community, but yes, it was extremely white. And actually, I would say that in that bigger community, I still was, uh, I mean, I still probably lived with, in that bigger community, it was all mostly white. I think one of the biggest things, one of the things that helped the most is uh, we actually had neighbors move down the street who were African-American. I think this was the first time my parents started to realize oh, crap, we've been doing a lot of things wrong, right? Because <laughs> uh, these African-American friends of ours would uh, come over and ask us about why we aren't taking care of, uh, we aren't doing the things that are expected of black people, right? And my parents would say, well, you know, we've tried. We tried sending them uh, here, but we just, um, and, and to my parents' credit, they had, uh, like, there were things that, yeah, they did do, like, I mean, when it came to like hair or something, that's something they, they did understand. They, had, they understood enough for that. Like we, uh, we'd actually driven a couple of times an hour away to be able to get our hair lined up. And so, yeah, there were things that they understood, but then other things that um, uh, having, uh, again, people who, these are people who had lived it in their life that helped for them to be able to help us and explain, uh, explain to us. When it came to like lotion and stuff, I mean, it was like, in my mind, I probably, I probably thought, look, yeah, I mean, you put on lotion, so it's not, so that way you're not itchy. But if I'm not itchy, I don't need lotion. But again, I have friends who'd come over and say, hey, why your skin ashy? It doesn't look good, right? Those, those different things. And so, yeah, in that community, it was all white, but we did have a few. Fr- we had the, we had the few friends who were African Americans that helped. And then again, when we moved up to Washington. It was a little bit of a smaller community, and again, mostly white. But then we were blessed again when we had African American friends, um, and their parents again were able to help us. Their whole family was able to help us and understand uh, that black culture, that culture that my uh, 
my white parents weren't ever going to understand, right? There's things that they just weren't, they weren't going to get. And it's funny. And actually now my parents live in, up in Camino. Um, I don't, uh, I'm, I'm staying with them for a little bit now. That's a different, that's a little bit of a different culture in itself. Also, right. Mostly white people, uh, old people. And so uh, th- that's different. That's a little bit of a different of a change, different of a change, but again, it helps too. Uh, talking about having different people, different examples in your life. My brother's married to African-American woman, right? That helps, right? Being able to have her in the family, having her uh, help explain things to us. Because again... So just to clarify, your your older white brother is married to an African-American woman, not your Kenyan brother, right? No, no, not my Kenyan brother, my older white, white brother. And so again, that helps. Having someone who's lived these things, being able to tell you, hey, this is the things I've experienced. What does it feel like for you when you're more near the city where there's much more racial diversity? Does it, do you feel like you can blend and does that feel kind of good or do you even notice it? So uh, I, I do school. At, I've been taking classes at Shoreline Community College. And when I went the very first time, I remember going home and talking to my mom and she's asking, oh, how's school? Telling her school was great so why do you sound so excited was just so great i looked at her and said mom i am not the only black person in the class it's a diverse school i can blend in and she was just like wow like i did i had no idea and i said no like it's it's awesome it's so it's like it's so diverse and i i love it for the first it's the first school i've gone to that's diverse and so she was she was happy for me and then again she 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 kind of started talking to me and saying well yeah i mean that's great, Derek. And I, I wish, I wish that we could have done that. I mean, that's, she'd tell you that's something she wishes she would have done is being able to put us in a more diverse community. I um, mean, even, I even said, yeah, mom, I do. There are times when I do wish that I do wish I was more in a more diverse community. And so, yeah, like with your question about being in, when I'm around people who are diverse, it makes me so happy. Like I can, I can just blend in and I'm, I'm fine. I will say that doesn't, it doesn't make everything perfect. I went to Kenya. I just got back from Kenya. It was my second time going back. I got back. Uh, we went in July. We got back. And one of the things I expected, um, even when, again, when I went on a 16, I was considered, oh, he's young. He's cute. It's so good. It's his first time back, uh, coming back from America. So great. But one thing I did find coming back from uh, Kenya the second time, I'm 21 now, I'm a little older, is that even in a place like that, I expected to blend in, I expected to fit in. Even that, I didn't necessarily fit in. I remember uh, they started calling me uh, this term called Muzungu Africa, and it actually means white African, right? And at first, I was like, oh, okay, oh, they got a name for me. Like, oh, look how cool this is. They got a name for me. This is cool. But I remember going to bed one night and laying there thinking about that. And I could actually remember them what it was telling. It was more of like, oh, what they're saying is you're uh, – you, you're not part of us, right? You don't speak Swahili. You live in America now. You live in a white family, a white world. You really aren't part of us. Um, and it actually hurt. Like I was, uh, I ended up going and talking to my therapist for the longest time about that. And I said, Deborah, it feels like I, there's no place I really fit in. She said, yeah, I think. Um, and she said, uh, you need to know you're not the only adoptee that's ever felt that way. You're not the only adopted ch- child that feels like, there's no culture that you really fit into. And I think what I discovered from that experience is that there's never really going to be a culture that I'm going to fully fit into. 
and that's it's the unfortunate part about being an adopted child right because as soon as I was removed from my Kenyan roots and taken into a white family it kind of it, it removed my full Kenyan culture out of me and so even when I go to Kenya even in that place I don't fully fit into that and so that was that was for sure very unexpected I didn't expect that at all but it but it hurt your heart right it hurt a yeah. lot I had to thought a lot for a long time it, it I told my mom about it and she said oh man that hurts that breaks my heart she she because she's not I mean she said do you really feel like there's no culture there's no culture you fit into and I said no mom it's not that I don't fit into is mom there's no culture I fully fit into think about it I don't fit into the white culture right I am not African-Americans like I'm perceived I'm, I'm perceived in America as African-American I'm not actually African-American I'm not actually African-American I'm African right so that has its own things and then even going back to Kenya I'm not full to them. I'm not fully Kenyan anymore because I'm no, I no longer live there. I feel, I wonder if they feel like I've abandoned them or something. So yeah, there, there's no culture I fully fit into. So that's, been, that's for sure something that uh, this year, this happy or whatever has been hard for me to think about and to be able to ponder. Yeah, I can imagine. Now, do you feel, so, you know, you said you're African, not African American. Do you feel like you fit in with your African American friends? It all depends. Um, that's a that's a thing that when I first um, when I first was in like middle school, I think that's about the time when people would people would ask me and actually they'd say things like, "You're not black enough. Like you sound white. You talk like you're white." And I was so confused by that. I was like, "What? What do you mean? Like what are you talking about?" I remember actually talking to one of our friends who's African Americans and said, "Hey, he's saying that he that I'm not black enough. Like what am I? Like what does this mean?" Right. Then he kind of laughed it off and said, well, Derek, first of all, I need to let you know you're talking to white kids from Winville, right? And so why did, what do they know about being black, right? And I said, oh, okay, yeah, you're right. And he said, and second of all, Derek, you are African, which means you're 100% black, right? There, you, you couldn't get any more black. And I said, oh, really? And he said, no, there's, you couldn't get any more black. And I kind of, I laughed about that. But he did, but through that conversation, I think what, I, uh, what these kids were saying is that Oh, Derek, you aren't you. You don't use the N word. You don't have the slang to you, like you uh, with with the way you you talk. But again, uh, that way of talking really general tends to generally come from the African American culture, and depending on where where you're raised and what uh, like what part of the country you're from. And I'm not from any part of that. Right? It's not like I'm I'm. That's not that's not who I am. Right? I'm from straight from <laughs> I'm straight out of Kenya. Right? And so that's just like. That's not a reality. I, I had to realize, oh, yeah, wait, I'm not African-American. But there are aspects of my life that I am expected to uh, do just from being the black. There's things that, as a black person, I do. Uh, like taking care of my hair, lotion, uh, those, those different things. But, yeah, I would say no. I feel like I can hang out with, I can hang out with African-Americans with my African-American friends and be fine. But also I understand that I'm not from the same culture as they are that's good good distinction to think about gosh i think I, this is like thinking about my voice so much in particular wow okay so tell us a little bit about uh one of the main things of your identity growing up is was athletics tell us a little bit about that and what it was like being a black athlete i loved i mean yeah i loved sports at the sports was just, uh Sports were super fun for me. I for sure. I, I enjoyed them a lot. I would say that 
um, there were things for sure happened. There, there were times when I for sure would uh, question things. Like when I first um, when I first was playing sports, I would uh, have parents actually believe it or not. This is when I first came to America. Um, just from watching me play, would question my my age. They'd question my birth certificate. They're like, there's no way he's there's no way he there's no way he's uh twelve or whatever. There's no way he could be on the team. He's too old, whatever. Um, and at the time, I didn't think much of it. But now, as I look back, I think there was more to it than just them saying that. I think that, and, and I even asked myself. I said, "Oh wait, if I was white, that wouldn't be questioned at all, right?" Like, let's be honest. If I was white, it'd be like, "Oh, look how great this athlete is. Look how good he is." But I think my race plays a factor into that. Being black for sure played a factor into that. That people would be like, "Oh, you know, he's taking our kid's spot. Oh no, he's." Let's find something wrong. Oh, where's his birth certificate? So my parents actually started carrying around my birth certificate. And so when parents would start talking, they'd be like, oh, here, you can see the birth certificate. Here, here it is. I mean, I think that was just kind of the first the start of some of the struggles that would happen. I can remember in like uh, high school when I'd be competing for a spot and I would do just as good as someone or even better as another person, but then they'd start over me. And it made no sense. It made zero sense i mean i was the only at the time i was the only black again i was the only black player on the team growing up i was the only black player on most of my teams um football included and so it, it made it made for a challenge for things there were things there were things that i worked really hard to be able to to earn but never earned that i just again i'm like i don't i don't get it i worked hard I worked harder than I was one of the work, hardest working players and uh, most uh, almost all my teams and there were times when I wouldn't get opportunities and so I'm I'm just uh, I mean I look back now and I'm like well uh, I mean it makes sense um, and then even talking to a lot of my uh, black friends uh, they'd tell me like yeah Derek like that's that's happened to me before right those are things that have happened to me um and so, yeah, it, it, for as fun as sports were, there were for sure things that happened that I'm just like, that doesn't, that I, I, I don't like, I don't like some of the ways I was, uh, was treated. And, and I'll be honest, I think my parents felt like I should have, uh, they wanted me to speak up more, but I, I just, to me, I was just like, okay, here's the thing, mom and dad, like I can try to speak up, I can try to say things about, it's it won't go over well. Like that even in itself, me, it, it, I, I kind of had to tell them like, I can't get out of line. Like, I don't want to get out of line, if you will. I just want to. I'll go and I play. I'll try my best. If I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. Um, but looking back on it, 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 it does break my heart that some of the ways I was treated. So, as a young black man, how and especially not living in a very culturally diverse or racially diverse uh, environment, how has that been for you with dating, like in high school, with homecoming or prom, or just? casual dating with friends yeah uh i think that one of the biggest things that i talk uh, i've been taught and talked to about all the time is being someone of color being uh someone who's black you have to understand you have to try not to put yourself in situations where someone might accuse you of something someone may say something because i think it's just kind of and it's unfortunate that that's uh where our country's at that's where the kind of place we live in but i uh, like like i was like we talked about, like if, if I got, if I was dating someone, I got accused of something, I mean, you know me, my parents know me, right? Like you, I'm just, 
I wouldn't do anything like that. But if I did get accused of something, it uh, it's unfortunate that we, if, like in court, it'd be hard for someone to say no, he didn't he didn't do it. Uh, I think I've, and I I have a friend who uh, African American guy, just big guy, um, who got accused of of hurting his girlfriend. He um, the way our si- the system is, there was no way for him to fight it, and so he had to just kind of he had to plead guilty to it, and end up and he actually ended up spending some time in prison uh, because of that. Uh, he, uh, I mean, it's on his record. He can't get a job. He, it's hard for him to get a job. He can't work with he can't work with kids. He can't. There's different things he can't do. Um, and again, one of the advice he's given me is just don't put yourself in a situation where something like that's going to happen. Um, it's a lot different coming from someone. Uh, who's black than it is from, uh, for other people. Um, and so when my dating, my dating experience has been like, okay, don't put yourself in a situation where someone's going to say something, someone could say something. And it, it actually that extends to all parts of different, all different sorts, all sorts of different parts of my life. Um, I remember in high school, if I ever went to parties or anything, I would, again, there's always a reminder of don't put yourself in a situation. You're black. It's going to be perceived differently. Do you have an example of that where you felt like your white friends could uh, act one way and you had to act a different way? When I, I mean, in high school, my friends, my friends all uh, did this thing where they went and would go and egg people's houses, right? And it, to me, that's crazy that they would do that. But they ended up, they, at one time, they egged this man's house. I think they got him egging the house probably... 24 times I think and it's funny because I think that the they ended up doing like 10 hours of community service that was the that's all the punishment and I kept thinking to myself I was like wow if I would have done something like that like if I uh, if I would have even thought to do something like that the police would have showed up and they would have been like oh he he's been egging my house and there was no there was nothing I could have done about it I probably would have gone arrested for doing something like that and so that's an example of like wow like they, that's i would never think to do that uh, my friends have told me stories about how if when they've gotten pulled over they start talking to the police officer saying like i didn't do it like what are you talking about like and i think again that's an example of like i wouldn't dare to ever talk to police. if i get pulled over i'm like yes sir no sir right like i'm not i'm not mouthing off or anything like that's just like that's not going to happen. It's just the reality of it. Um, trying to think of other, I mean, there's so many examples of things that I'm just like, yeah, I couldn't, I, I couldn't do anything like that. You know, we live in a fairly small ish community. And I remember a couple of years ago, maybe even three years ago. So my boys weren't too old, but um, our youth group was doing an outdoor game in the dark of capture the flag at a city park and the kids were running like in the neighborhoods. And I just thought, I'm not going to let my black boys run in the dark in the neighborhoods. I just, it scared me too much. My senior year, we played, uh, they had what's called senior assassin, right? That's the game you play where you, you go, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to go around and you assign someone to, you, you shoot them with a Nerf gun, right? You're supposed to go around and you shoot them with a Nerf gun. I told my friends, I told people at this class that I can't play that game. Could you imagine if someone, if a police officer or if someone just, all they have to say is, oh my gosh, there's a black person holding a gun and a police officer is going to come up. There's no way the police is going to say, oh wait, he's just playing a game, right? 
And so I just had to say again, that's something that all my friends did that I just wasn't going to be a part of. And I actually had other black friends who didn't do that just because it's, it, it, you perceive differently. It's not going to be my fr- white friends could do it and say, Oh, look how look much fun they're doing. That's, I can't do that. Well, and it's, it's not even necessarily always just the police officers. It could be people in the community, you know, who see a black teenage boy running around in the dark and they may respond differently than if it's a white teenage boy running around in the dark. Especially in some of the, yeah, for sure. Especially in some of the places. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's hard for me. Gosh, it's just sad for me and it's hard, but I, I think I'm getting smarter. (laughs) I think, I mean, I'm trying to learn the hard things that I probably didn't want to learn as much earlier on. Well, and I think it's one of those things where it becomes, it becomes, well, that's just a reality of it. There's nothing you can, there's nothing you can really do about it, but it's just, it becomes reality. And like uh, an example of, yeah, we're talking about things that my wife friends can do that I can't, I walk into a store. One of the things I always do is I take off, I love wearing my hood. I love having my hand in my pocket. One of the first things I always do is I take my hood off and I take my hands out of my pocket. Again, just so that way someone can't perceive me of something. They, they see my hands, they see that they're, right? Because, uh, I mean, yeah, you, there's times when people can perceive you like, oh, he's, look, he's got his hands in his pocket, he's stealing something. or And so just to avoid all of that, I take my hands out of my pocket. I remember having a conversation with my brother and he asked me, why do we do that? Like, why is that a thing? And I said, I, I wish that wasn't a thing. I wish we could just walk into a store and everything would be fine. But I, sorry, that's just the reality of it. And that's just, it's kind of what, it's kind of what we have to do. And it's, it's not, it's not good. It's not like, I don't like it, but it's just the reality of it. How did you learn that? I think when it first started for me, when I really started paying attention was with Trayvon Martin. That was a wake up call. I think not just for me and I think for everyone in my family, but especially in my mind, I think that's when I was like, okay, I'm going to be treated differently. Things are going to be different. Uh, people can perceive different things. And so I have to, I have to, uh, there's the things I have to do that are different. Like, again, I can't walk into a store with my hand in my pocket. Someone could think I have a gun. Someone could think I'm stealing something. Um, so for me, yeah, that's when I really, really first started was with Trayvon Martin. How old were you when that, when that happened? I was, cause I, I want to say that was what, 2013, 12? Let's see, what's, we're 2019 now, so it was probably like six or eight years ago, six or seven years ago. So that's probably 14 or 15 at the time. Yeah. And that reality kind of hit you hard. Yeah, for sure. It did. Mm-hmm. Have you, um, so we may have already kind of covered this, but just have you, experienced um other kinds of sort of subtle racism yeah i've uh there are times i think one clear picture that stands out to me was when i was in middle school again i, I told you earlier i like to have my hands in my pocket i like to wear a hood that's a, that's the thing i do and actually one thing if you get to know me well enough you'll know it's one thing i like to do I either will hug you or i'll shake your hand like that's something i like to do like like shaking hands. My older brother makes fun of me because I do it so much. He's like, Derek, you're not a businessman. Why do you need to shake my hand? Don't shake my hand. <laughs> Just something like that. But again, I shake, I shake hands a lot, right? One day, middle school, I get off the bus and I had a friend who, I was in seventh grade. He was in eighth grade. I get off the bus. I have a buddy. I'm walking up to him. It's, I, I mean, 
when I wake up in the morning, I'm happy. I like, I like, I love school. And so being there makes me happy. And so I could, I could walk off the bus. I'm all happy. Woo, I'm here at school. So I saw my buddy standing by the flagpole and he walks up to me and uh, he's white and I'm black. Right. And so I, again, I have my hands in my pocket. I'm cold. I walk up to him, shake his hand, put my hand back in my pocket, walk out. Don't think much of it. Around fourth period, I get a note to uh, come to the principal's office. And I'm thinking, what? What just happened? And at the time, actually, I'm thinking, well, because I know I haven't done anything wrong all day. And so I'm like, well, did something happen to my family? Like, this is sad. Like, oh, they're going to tell me that something happened. So I'm thinking worst case scenario, right? Because I'm, that's just where I'm thinking. Like, I didn't do anything. So I go to the principal's office and um, and that actually, the, the way the middle schools work is you know, with disciplinary, you see the assistant principal, right? So then when I saw the assistant principal, then I was really like, oh, wait, did I do something? Did something happen? Wait, now I'm trying to picture in my head, did I do something? So I go and I sit down and, so do you want to tell me what was happening today by the flagpole? And so then I'm really I'm like, because okay, I think all the way back, good no, what are you talking about? Did you give, uh, did you give so-and-so did you give so-and-so something? So no, I didn't. What are you talking about? Because, well, it, it looked to me, it seemed to me like you were giving him drugs or something. I said, what? What are you talking about? Because she says, you sure nothing happened? Said, no. I said hi to my friend. And I went to class. She goes, okay. So then... I go home and again, I'm thinking about this and, and I'm thinking, how do I want to tell my mom this? Right? Cause again, I'm thinking, how is she going to respond? Is she going to be like, Derek, are you selling something? Or is she going to be like, what? And so I'm sitting there. My parents are both sitting there where it's like around dinner time. I said, mom and dad, they talked to you about something. Now they're thinking, Oh crap, what happened? I said, so today at school and they know I like to have my hands in my pocket. They know I like to shake hands. They already know all that. And they said, so I kind of run down the whole story with them. And so I tell them, everything from the flagpole all the way to getting called into the assistant principal's office. And I told her everything. And so then I said, yeah. And so then she thought that I was selling drugs and I saw my mom do this thing that she gets up and I'm thinking, Oh no, she goes, Oh no. She goes, is school open or not? I go, no, not till tomorrow. And so then the next day I get a call from, I, I get another note sending me into the principal's office and she says, yeah, I want to apologize for, thinking that you were doing something illegal and uh, I shouldn't have done anything like that. And I'm thinking, okay, what just happened? So I go home and uh, it turns out that my mom had called her and said that that is extremely racist for you to accuse my son of doing something like that. My son would never do anything like that. You could ask every teacher at that school, ask every student at that school, he would never do such a thing. And so for you to assume that my son is selling drugs simply from shaking hands with someone. It's just extremely wrong and it's not okay. And I was like, go mom. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you had never been in trouble. I mean, you'd never been in trouble in school. You, you've always been such a great kid and never gotten in any trouble. Yeah. So for that to happen, like for me to get a note like that sitting in assistant principal's office, that really made me think, I'm like, what is going on? Like what is happening? But I think that again, my mom in that moment sees this and she sees this as, Oh, again, this is something that, I mean, this is another lesson of like, Oh, my son's going to be perceived differently than my other, my other sons, right? I have to raise him differently than I had to 
raise my biological children. And so it, it was for sure something that I was just, even to this day, I still look back and I'm like, I can't believe that happened. That's just, that's crazy to me. That is crazy to me too. Knowing, knowing you, that's crazy to me. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. And then I'll, I'll come back to one last question for you from a parent. What am I? Yeah. So I'm a, I'm volunteering at a church and I'm leading a group of seventh grade boys. Also, I'm working at this uh, company called Basic Beginnings and I'm working with kids with special needs. And that's, that has been, oh, that's been so great for me. I've learned so many things from that. And I'm also in this fall, I'll be done with my AA. And so I'm looking to transfer. I've already started applying to different schools for, um, uh, I'm still sort of undecided on what I want to study. There's so many things I'm so passionate about. Um, and so I'm doing that. I'm also living with my parents for a little while, living with them at Camino Island, which has been so much fun. Drive is not as fun, but Camino Island's a fun place. <laughs> uh, yeah, and so I'm doing, yeah, there's a lot going on right now, but I'm excited. I'm excited for this season of life. It's going great. That's great. And, you know, circling all the way back to your dating, when we were talking about dating, before we were recording, you were telling me that it, right now you're dating a woman of color. So do you want to talk just a tiny bit about that? Yeah, I'm dating a woman. Yeah, exactly. So I'm dating a woman of color. And what's so great about it is that so many things that I've experienced, she's also experienced, right? So she's, she's Pakistani. And so there's so many of these feelings. And so we can have, we can have really good conversations about uh, it isn't like, oh, she's just listening just to listen. Like, oh, Derek, I feel bad for you. These are things that she's also experienced. And so uh, this has been so great for me, being able to have someone who I can talk to who has experienced the same sorts of uh, things. And I would say, too, that there are different types of uh, racism and different types of uh, experiences that she's had just from being uh, someone of the Pakistani uh, culture. And so that's that's also been great to be able to learn a different perspective that people deal with. And so, yeah, it's, I love it. It's dating her has been amazing. She's awesome. That's great. Okay. I'm going to end with one last question from a parent. She said, if there was one top thing that your parents did that you think was extremely helpful for loving you and supporting you, what would it be? The top thing that they did for loving me and supporting me, yeah, here. Uh, one, one thing I'll name is that I think that my parents made sure to know that our home was going to be a place of openness, that we can talk about anything, we can talk about any feelings, and that was just going to be open, that no one's going to be judged for having a certain feeling. Uh, they could say, yeah, you can just be open, talk about whatever is on your heart, whatever is making you upset, because again, living in a uh, biracial family is extremely hard, right? And so that was just something that was super open and my parents made it clear you this is an open space for you guys to talk about and that includes not just my brother and I who were adopted that includes my biological brothers and sisters because again that in itself right having adoptive brothers and sisters that creates problems in um, other people's lives too right and so again that was it was open for them to talk about they could talk about feelings that they had and my parents made sure to uh, I mean, especially when we first get we got adopted, they would go to dinner with my siblings and they'd talk about just things that were happening. And they were we'd have family meetings where we could just hash out and talk about feelings, right? Um, so that was super important to me, knowing that this is open and so I'm not going to be judged for feeling a certain way. I could say, yeah, mom and dad, I it's hard being black in this white family, 
and not, people weren't going to say anything. But uh, and they also understood too that uh, they didn't have all the answers. I think this, and I'd say this was the number one thing. They didn't have all the answers, my parents. And so they knew that they had to go and seek out uh, help from specialists. And I think the best thing you could do for your child, adoptive child, really the best thing anyone could do is having a therapist, right? You have to, as an adoptive child, you have to have a therapist. I could not have gone back to Kenya and faced my uh, biological mom who had abandoned me without having seen a therapist. And at first, when my parents tried to make me see a therapist, I didn't want to go. I did not want to go and sit and talk to someone. I did not want to share my feelings, but they forced me to go. And yes, I said yes. They forced me to go. They, at times, even threatened to take away sports until I saw a therapist because it's that important. So the best thing you can do for your child is make them see a therapist. Make them see someone who, um, and it's not going to, that doesn't mean that the first therapist you see is going to be a perfect one for them, but keep looking. Find someone who they can see who's going to help them work through their problems because it is so important. I still see my therapist and it wasn't, I didn't fully get to know who I am until I saw someone who was able to talk me through my feelings, talk me through my life, the things were happening in my life. So that's the, I, if I could say anything, best thing you could do, see a therapist, it's that important. Make your children go. If they don't want to go, if they feel like, oh, like, I'm, like I don't want to see someone, Take away sports, take away, threaten to take away something they like, because it's, it's, to me, it's that important. Wow, that is strong. That is not where I expected you to land. So I think that's fascinating. So the two things your parents did really, really well, they allowed for open dialogue and conversation about anything and everything and with a lot of acceptance, and they made you go to a therapist. Well, Derek, thank you so much for this conversation. I know a lot of parents are going to listen to this and just be really, really grateful that you were willing to spend this time and share so much of your life with us. Thanks, Lisa. I loved this. I, you're been a dear friend to us. You, you're like family, like another mother to me. So oh, I love I love thank you. To to. Thank you. Thanks, Lisa, for getting Derek on the podcast. I really appreciate his voice. I have had the pleasure of meeting him in person, and he is a fantastic human being. I really appreciate his vulnerability at the end about some of the race issues. Our family, actually, just a couple weeks ago, had a violent act committed against one of the Black men in our extended family, and it really rocked us to the core. And that is not... Fortunately, that is not the first time the black males in our family have had overt acts of racism done to them. And even as Koreans, uh, both my siblings and myself have experienced some pretty overt and ignorant racism along the way. And so it's important to talk about it because sometimes it can be hidden or even as someone who experiences it, we don't always think to share it, you know, with people. Sometimes it's a little shaming or whatever. So we just need to be listening and know that these things are happening, even if we don't see them happen for ourselves. Well, I appreciate Derek just being able to talk about it and share this with all of us who are listening and and really expanding our horizons of 
what it's like to grow up black in a white family. And he has a remarkable family. And as you could tell from our interview, I know his family very, very well. And they are amazing. It's just a gift to me that he was willing to share the way he did. For those of you who might be attending the Refresh Conference next March, Derek will be speaking at that and you can meet him and hear more from him. We also have made a short list. I wouldn't say it's a long list, but we have made a list of some books uh, related to race and some also related to adoption, transracial adoption. And we have those for you in our show notes. You can find those at theadoptionconnection.com slash 61. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram as The Adoption Connection. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a quick review over on iTunes. It will help us reach more moms who may be feeling alone. And remember, until next week, you're a good mom doing good work, and we're here for you. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.